Um, this is uh, Lesson 16, and we are considering the second part of this uh, section on how to attain contentment. Uh, the recommended reading is a little strange, remember, because we were using a PDF version online. That's how we started this. It's actually its own chapter in the Banner of Truth edition. Uh, so th- that's why the recommended reading says things like we're going to consider sections 1 through 12 from the words, the main thing that I intend by way of appliance or application is, etc. Um, uh, the reason for that is because there are different versions with different chapter breaks uh, out there. So let's open in a word of prayer now, and then we will get into this uh, study that has very much to do with application. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day. Uh, again, we do give you thanks for this teaching uh, brought to us by Jeremiah Burroughs, who lived so long ago. We thank you for the way in which he has brought the truth of Scripture out to us and has applied it uh, with such precision. Uh, God, it has been a help to us, and so we pray that you would continue to give us understanding concerning what contentment is, but above all else, help us to lay a hold of it, O Lord. Uh, May we not be like those who learn and learn and learn and never uh, lay a hold of uh, this knowledge truly, but may we understand this truly and apply it to our hearts. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the introduction to this section, Burroughs uh, does make it clear that he is uh, going to now move on to some very uh, pointed instructions for how to lay a hold of uh, contentment. And he has 12 points in this last portion uh, that we will consider this morning. I'll go through them rather rapidly. Uh, I would encourage you to read this for yourselves and to read it slowly enough to really contemplate it. Number one, all the rules and helps in the world will do us little good unless we get a good temper within our hearts, Burroughs says. And then that is followed by a very wonderful illustration. You can never make a ship go steady by propping it outside. You know there must be a ballast within the ship to make it go steady. It's a wonderful visual, isn't it? If, if a ship is in the midst of a storm, you can't prop it up from outside to keep it upright. There has to be a ballast deep within the ship itself in order to keep it steady in the storm. And so it is in the Christian life. If we are to be content, if we're to be at peace inwardly, we have to have a ballast within us. Uh, we have to have a heart Uh, that is settled within us. There has to be faith deep within us. It is is that that will help us to stay the course. Uh, It is that that will enable us to stay the course through the storms of life. Uh, And brothers and sisters, as I read this, I thought the, the congregation does need to be continually exhorted to do soul work, you know, to, to really do the hard work of examining the heart and tending to the heart. Uh, it is easy, very easy to begin to go through the motions of religion, isn't it? Uh, to come to church Lord's Day after Lord's Day, uh, but to not really reflect upon what has been taught or, or, or to think deeply upon it or to apply it. It's easy to read the Scriptures. You might be very diligent in your devotions, you know, to read the Scriptures every day and to pray every day, but even that can be done in a very shallow and superficial way, can't it? It's easy to follow 
fall into these traps, uh, we have to tend to our souls. We have to weed the garden of our souls. Whatever terminology you want to use, I mean, it takes hard work to reflect upon the truth of God's Word and to inspect oneself against the mirror of God's Word and, and to root out any uh, wickedness within us. And, and I'm afraid that many do fall into the trap of superficial religion. And so here Burroughs is saying, listen, all the rules that I'm going to set down for you for attaining contentment, they're not going to do any good at all unless we get a, get, get a good temper within our hearts. We have to keep our hearts. All these other things will, will, will accomplish nothing if we do not do this. Number two, if you would get a contented life, do not grasp too much of the world. Do not take in more of the business of the world than God calls you to. This whole section is very insightful. Um, here Burroughs is saying, he is warning against, rather, um, taking in too much of the world or putting your hands on too much of the world beyond what the Lord has called you to. Uh, it is true that the Lord has called some men, some women, to have very much to do with the things of the world. Here we are not using the word world to mean sinful, right? Uh, must kings have much to do with the world? Yes, it is their calling to govern society and, and to rule over society. And if that is the Christian's calling to, to serve as a king, I speak in an old-fashioned way right now, of course. But if that is the Christian's calling to serve as a king, then the king must engage with worldly things. He, he, must, he must put his hands on those things and do this faithfully as a, as a godly man. Perhaps the Lord has willed it that a Christian be very wealthy and have authority over many people in some other capacity as a, as a, as a CEO or something like that. Do not neglect the things of the world if that is your Christian calling. Here he is warning against, um, I think, overreach, if I could use that term. You know, perhaps a, a Christian who has not been called to such things, and yet they're, they're just always putting their hands on things in the world that they don't need to put their hands on. And in so doing, they end up bringing trouble upon themselves. Does this make sense? It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you, you know... You, in other words, maybe we could look at some and say, you could live so much more simply, but by putting your hands on so many things unnecessarily, <laughs> uh, foolishly, in an unwise way, you end up piling up trouble for yourselves. Um, Those who desire to be rich pierce themselves through with many pains, the Scriptures say. What does that mean? Uh, the one who has this desire to be wealthy as it pertains to the things of the world, um, and, and they're striving after that, making that the purpose of their life, what do they end up doing? They do not lay a hold of pleasant things. They end up poking themselves continuously with the things of the world. And I think some have made a ruin of themselves by living in this way. And that, I think, is what Burroughs is addressing here. If you would get a contented life, do not grasp too much of the world. Do not take in more of the business of the world than God calls you to. That is what that phrase means. Three, be sure of your call to every business you go about. Though it is the least business, be sure of your call to it. Then, whatever you meet with, you may quiet your heart with this. I know I am where God would have me. 
So here, Burroughs is encouraging Christians to be sure of their calling. He is not here referring to Christian calling, the call to faith. All Christians have this call. They have been called to God through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him. Here, Burroughs is referring to a vocation, a vocational call. What has the Lord called you to do in this world particularly? So be sure of that. He gives no instruction so as to how to be sure of your vocational call here. The book is not about that. Perhaps a whole other book would be needed to address that subject. Um, But the Lord has called us to faith in Christ, and every Christian does also have a special calling. For some, they are called to uh, serve as, as physicians. Others are called to serve as lawyers. Some are called to serve as electricians. Some are called to serve as housewives. Uh, and, and mothers in the home. There are different callings for different people, and we need to be sure that we are doing what the Lord has called us to do. Uh, this, of course, involves prayer. This involves meditation upon God's Word. This involves um, having others speak into your life that is very wise when trying to discern your, your calling. Well, what do you see in me? You know, what, what do you think the Lord is calling me to do based upon what you know about me, etc.? Uh, This is a thing that young people in particular have to struggle with. Uh, What is the Lord calling me to do with my life? But here Burroughs is not addressing all of that. He's simply saying, be sure of your call to every business you go about. Be sure that it is the will of the Lord for you as best as you are able, so that when you meet trouble in your calling, you're able to stand firm against it. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're kind of uncertain about the Lord's will for you, then when, trouble, um, then when trouble comes, you're going to be very shaken by that trouble. But if you are resolute that this is what the Lord has called me to do, then when trouble comes, there will be more stability. That You'll be more resolute and constant. You'll be able to press through the trouble. Be sure of your call to every business that you go about. I think this requires us to live very carefully in the world, to not jump into things in a haphazard sort of way, not even little things. Uh, We need to jump into things thoughtfully, prayerfully, and with wisdom. Um, And we know that one of the most wise things we can do is to rely upon the counsel that others give to us. Number four What has just been said is especially true if I add that I walk by rule in the work that I am called to do. I am called to such a business, but I must manage this work that I am called to by rule. I must walk by the word, order myself in this business according to God's mind as far as I am able. So whatever the Lord has called you to do, be sure that you are obeying the Lord in that work. Uh, Be sure that you are upright in that work, living in obedience to God. That will bring stability to your life. That will bring contentment and peace to your life. If you are going about your work in kind of a shady way, right? Uh, uh, you're cutting corners, you're acting in an immoral way uh, in your work, uh, and then trouble comes upon you, you're going to find that you do not have a good foundation because after all, maybe the trouble that has come upon you has come upon you because of your foolishness or your sinfulness. You'll be shaken. So be sure that we walk by rule, that we walk according to the law of God in all of our work. I've had some interesting conversations with my sons in particular 
uh, lately as they, they're, they're, they're approaching adulthood. My daughters are in adulthood, and I suppose I've had this conversation with, this, with them too. Uh, because what has the Lord called you to do is, is a question that is on their mind and on, on my mind for my children. And one of the things that I've been warning them about is this. Whatever it is that you do, you must honor the Lord in it. You cannot compromise in your work. As I look out upon the world, I see that there are lots of pressures out there to compromise uh, in, in, in employment. Uh, bosses may ask you to do immoral things for the company, you know. Um, and it seems that that pressure is going to be found in every single field. It, no matter what field it is, there are going to be pressures applied upon you in one way or another to not walk by rule. You know, the, the boss is going to say, yes, you can have this job, but you must work on Sundays. <laughs> that is common, etc. And I think it is very important for Christians to be prepared to, to walk in an upright way as they fulfill their vocation, as they fulfill their calling in this world. Letter A, a sub-point to four. When I know that I have not put myself on the work, but God has called me to it, and I walk by the rule of the word in it, then whatever may come, God will take care of me there. So these two things together, I, I trust that this is what the Lord has called me to do, I've worked through that in my soul. I, I, I'm confident that this is the path that the Lord has called me to take presently. And when we walk by rule or according to the law of God in that path, uh, those two things combined uh, bring a great deal of stability to us in, as we sojourn, as we walk in this world. Number five, exercise much faith. I do like that word, exercise. Uh, we have faith, but we must exercise it. We must Put it into, we must put it to work, right? As we live in this world, we have faith, but we must also walk by faith and not by sight. Exercise much faith, that is the way for contentedness. After you have done with all the considerations that reason may suggest to you, if you find that these do not do it, oh then call for the grace of faith. Uh, this, I, if I remember right, is a pretty long section in this chapter, and it's very rich. I think it's, it's uh, prone to be misunderstood, though. Um, it, it almost seems as if what Burroughs is saying is that we're to walk by reason. You know what I mean by that? Um, uh, we're to think and figure everything out for ourselves and make sense of everything. And then when reason comes to an end, like when it cannot go any further, then we are to exercise faith. That is not what Burroughs is saying. We're to walk by faith always. But we are called to use our reason also. You, you understand this. Faith is not contrary to reason. The two things do go together. I think what Burroughs is saying here is that oftentimes when we walk in this world, things do make sense to us, to our reason. You know, I, I understand why this is happening. I, I can make sense of this. Oftentimes that is the case. For ordinary life, we can make sense of the things that are going on in our lives, um, right? Uh, but you know that there are times where things just do not make sense, where we cannot really figure th things out. Why is this thing happening to me? I, I don't know. 
I don't know. It doesn't make sense why this is happening to me. And I think that is what Burroughs is addressing here. When you get to that point where things just don't make sense to you, be sure to exercise faith. Be sure to leave it to God, to say, though I cannot make sense of it, though I do not want things to go this way, I will trust the Lord in this, that He is working all things for good, uh, that He is able to bring good out of this, that He is able to keep me and to bring me safely home into my eternal inheritance. Be sure to exercise faith, especially in these moments where your ability to reason and to understand hits a brick wall. Put faith to practice. Labor to be spiritually minded is the next point. And I think it was at this point in my reading of the chapter that it really struck me how much Burroughs is exhorting us to work, right? Um, He has told us to get a good temper within our hearts. It's something that must be worked on inwardly. He has called us not to grasp too much of the world, so to cease from something. He has called us to to labor to be sure about our calling and to be sure to walk by rule in our callings. He has just called us to exercise much faith and now the word labor is used. Labor to be spiritually minded. I, I think one good thing for us to realize here is that if we are to lay a hold of contentment, it is going to require work. It is going to require effort. Is contentment a grace? Is it a gift from God? Yes, it is. But that does not mean that we do not have to work on it. Um, and, and so it is with, with all of God's graces. Is faith a gift from God? Would we have it unless He chose to give it to us? Answer, no. Is it a gift from God? Yeah, answer, yes, it is a gift. Must we exercise faith? yes. We must walk by it. The two things are not contrary. So faith is a gift from God. We must exercise it. And God has called us to do many things in the Holy Scriptures. One of them is to be spiritually minded. That is, be often in meditation of the things that are above. We must choose to set our minds on the things that are above. Burroughs goes on to say, Many Christians who have an interest in the things of heaven converse but very little with them, their meditations are not much upon heavenly things. So you've been called to keep your heart pure. And here Burroughs is saying, be sure to keep your mind pure too. Make sure that your mind is fixed not just on the things of this earth, but on the things that are above, on heavenly, spiritual, and eternal things. And you know how very easy it is to be consumed with the things of this world, to be thinking only about your projects, only about your worldly employment, only about your worldly recreations. It can be so consuming. But we must stop and think about spiritual things too. The Lord's Day is the best day of the week to do that. But it can be done continuously. As we are faithful to do what God has called us to do in this world, we must always keep in mind the spiritual, heavenly, and eternal realities. Uh, That is what gives our life here on earth meaning and true significance. And so we must labor to be spiritually minded. Number seven, do not promise yourselves too much beforehand. Do not reckon 
on two great things. Great of things? Do not promise yourselves too much beforehand. Do not reckon on too great of things. Um, I think it is easy to misunderstand Burroughs' point here, too. Um, some of the things that he said can be, that he say in this book can be interpreted as if Burroughs is saying, listen, just assume everything's going to fall apart, okay? <laughs> and I don't think that is the point at all. But here, uh, he is talking about keeping the heart pure and, and secure. To not promise yourself um, too much beforehand. To, to, to not say in the heart, um, you know, certainly you deserve this, or certainly you deserve that, or certainly if God loves you, He will bless you in this way uh, in this world. If we promise ourselves those sorts of things, what will happen when they do not come, except that we will be massively disappointed, and even we will be prone to fall into the lie that God has failed us. Does that make sense? I think this is one of the great tragedies of that, um, that prosperity gospel movement that is so prevalent in the world today. Um, is it the Lord's will that we prosper in this world? Well, maybe for some it is. The Lord's will is that some be rich, that some be powerful. So, so be it. But a careful consideration of the Scriptures reveals that very often God's people suffered in this world. So the prosperity gospel thing is, is a lie from the beginning. And one of the great tragedies of it, as preachers say God's will for you is to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous, is that as professing Christians believe this lie, when it does not come true, they're dejected completely and ruined as they believe now that God has utterly failed them. God has not kept His promises to me. Well, no, God has never promised such things to you, in fact. You have promised too much to yourself. Or this charlatan preacher has promised too much to you and you have believed it. And it's destructive um, to the soul. It, it is better for us to keep our hearts humble, to keep our hearts low, to see what it is that God has promised us, and to not allow ourselves to go beyond that. So that if the Lord brings added blessings to us in life, we rejoice in them. But if He does not bring added blessings to us in this life, in this world, then we're content even still, knowing that God will keep His actual promises to us, which has to do with preserving us in this world and to bring us into our eternal inheritance. I think that is what Burroughs is getting at here. He is not encouraging us to be perpetually pessimistic. Okay. Or to be inactive and not striving for success in this world. He's not encouraging that, but he is encouraging us to, to keep our hearts humble and low. Now I'll read his explanation of this in point A under 7. It is good for us to take hold very low and not think to pitch too high. Do not soar too high in your thoughts beforehand to think, Oh, if I had this and this, and imagine great matters to yourselves. But be as good Jacob. You know, he was a man who lived a very contented life in a mean or low condition. And he said, Lord, if I may but have clothes to put on and meat to eat. He looked no higher. He was content with that. So Paul says, if we have but meat and drink and clothing, let us therewith be content. He did not soar too high aloft. Again, I will say this, Burroughs is not saying, do not 
strive to have more than food to eat and clothes to wear. Contentment does not equal complacency, nor is Burroughs saying you must be perpetually pessimistic and negative and dour in your outlook. But he is urging us to be sure that we have our hearts prepared to be content with even just our daily bread. And we are to be satisfied in the Lord. And if the Lord's will is to bless us with more, then we will all the more rejoice in those things. But if the Lord takes those things away or or withholds those things, we are nevertheless content in Him. I don't think anyone can argue that this is what the Scriptures call us to do. But I think all would admit it is difficult to keep the heart in this way. Number eight, here is the word labor again. Labor to get your hearts mortified to the world. That is to say, dead to the world. We must not content ourselves that we have gotten some reasoning about the vanity of the creature and such things as these, but we must exercise mortification and be crucified to the world. So here, Burroughs is saying, go beyond just the understanding that the creature is vanity. In other words, that the things of this world are really empty in and of themselves and will not satisfy by themselves. Sure, you understand that and you might confess it as a Christian with your lips. He's saying go beyond that and actually be mortified to the things of this world. Um, be put to death concerning the things of this world in the inner, in the inner man. Uh, that, that is what we must do. Um, I love that line, And the things of this world grow strangely dim. And the light of His glory and grace. Did I get the lyrics right? I got it right? Mike knows. What's the song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I love that line. And the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. What, what do we mean when we say that? What we mean is that the closer we, the, the, the more we know Christ and the closer we are drawn into communion with God through faith in Him, the more we savor Him, the more the things of this world um, grow, grow dim. They, 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 they don't impress us as much as they used to. I mean, you know, it, when you are not a believer and you look out on the world, all of the glitz and glamour seems very impressive. You know, We look at the, the big houses and the, the fancy cars and the Decadent food, whatever, fill in the blank. And we think, wow, if only I had those things. I mean, they just shine and they glimmer to the non-believer and to the immature Christian. Wow, if only I had those things, I would be, I would be satisfied. But then you live a while and you, and you come to faith in Christ or you mature in Christ. And those things that used to really pop, you know, they used to seem so shiny and, and appealing they grow strangely dim. It's kind of a, a mysterious thing, but they just don't have the shine, the, the, the sheen to them anymore, right? They, they seem dingy, and rightly so, because they will not satisfy. Christ satisfies, God satisfies. Um, and I think we, we have to, um, this is what it means to, to mortify the flesh in part. The man with the muckrake. In Pilgrim's Progress. Remind me of that scene. Can, can you elaborate, John? What was he?
Yes, okay. So, for the sake of the recording, the man with the muckrake in the Pilgrim's Progress, he's looking downward, he's just pouring himself into raking muck, getting all that he can, but it's nothing, it's just vile. Um, Isn't the Pilgrim's Progress a wonderful book? Uh, we really enjoyed that study too, written in a similar time frame, by the way, as um, this book that we're now considering, not exactly the same, but um, really all of these truths are communicated in that book by way of allegory. Yeah, thank you for the reminder about that, John. So we need to uh, be dead to the things of this world. Letter A, under 8, an elaboration here. Let afflictions and troubles find you with a mortified heart to the world, and they will not break your bones. Those whose bones are broken by crosses and afflictions are those who are alive to the world, but are not dead to the world. But no afflictions or troubles will break the bones of one who has mortified heart, has a mortified heart, and is dead to the world. That is, they will not be very grievous or painful to such a one as is mortified to the world. Here, Burroughs is building upon an illustration that he used concerning Christ on the cross. When the soldiers came to break the bones of, of Christ, to break His legs as He hung there on the cross, they found Him dead and so they did not break His bones. And so Burroughs picks up upon that and makes an illustration out of it to say, uh, that if we are dead to the things of this world, if we do not live for them, if we're not really impressed by them, if they're not so glamorous to us, um, if, if we're dead to the things of this world, then when we are afflicted as it pertains to the things of this world, our bones will not be broken. And you know how this works. If you are in love with the things of this world and they are taken from you, be it possessions, your reputation, your family, your home, if you are in love with these things in an ungodly way, if they are taken from you, you will be broken. You will be crushed to the core, right? But if you enjoy these things in a godly way and are, are not in love with them and are, are not serving them as idols, if they are taken from you, you'll feel the pain of it. There will be true mourning. There will be godly sorrow. All of that will be real. Your afflictions are real, remember. We're not to forget that truth. But you will not be broken. You, you will not be undone by the loss of these things. You see the difference, right? And so we have to keep our hearts uh, pure, fixed upon God and Christ in the world to come. And we must be dead uh, to these, the things of this world. It's a wonderful section there, summarized in just a few words here in the outline. Please read it for yourselves. Number nine, let not men and women pour too much upon their afflictions. That is, busy their thoughts too much to look down into their afflictions. What a wonderful point this is. I'll read it again. Let not men and women pour too much upon their afflictions. That is, busy their thoughts too much to look down into their afflictions. Are afflictions afflictions? Yes, they are. Are we free to acknowledge them? Yes, we are. Are we free to cry out to God concerning our afflictions, to ask Him to remove them? Yes, we can do that. Are we even free to talk to our friends and our Christian brothers and sisters about the afflictions we experience? Yes. Not murmuring and complaining, but yes, in a godly way, we, we may do all of that. Here Burroughs is saying, but be careful that you do not fixate too much upon your afflictions. If you do this, you'll be ruined. You'll be undone. He uses an illustration here that I, I really appreciate, and I'll go to it now, letter A. You find many people, all of whose thoughts are taken up about what their crosses and afflictions are. They are altogether thinking and speaking of them. It is just with them as with a child who has a sore. His finger is always on the sore. 
So men's, thought, men's and women's thoughts are always on their afflictions. When they awake in the night, their thoughts are on their afflictions. And when they converse with others, it may be even when they are praying to God, they are thinking of their afflictions. Oh, no marvel that you live a discontented life if your thoughts are always pouring over such things. You should rather labor to have your thoughts on those things that may comfort you. The illustration I was referring to there is the one of the child who always has his finger in the sore. You know how that is. There's a cut and then there's a scab. And what does the child do? Maybe even adults, right? Just constantly picking at it, you know. And and you could hear the mother saying, stop picking at that, right? But they're obsessed with the affliction. And so it is with some men and women. Um, We have to be careful that we do not fixate too much on the afflictions. We have to look up from them often to God and to the good things of this life and to these blessings. And so we have to be disciplined in the mind so as to not be so consumed with the true and real afflictions that are about us. This takes spiritual discipline. Uh, I think you would agree that men and women have been ruined by this, by fixating too much upon real and true afflictions and not looking up to God to give Him glory for the good things that they have. Ten, I beseech you to observe this, though you should forget many others. Make a good interpretation of God's way towards you. If any good interpretation can be made of God's ways towards you, make it. Oh, I I love this section too, and I'm running out of time, and I'm aware of it, so I have to move quickly. Um, You can read letters A, B, and C for yourselves. I, I will not read them. I'll simply summarize them. But here Burroughs, uh, he notices that sometimes people live this way with others. uh, That they're always thinking the worst of others. They're always interpreting the words of others in the worst possible way. So you might say something to them and mean something good by it. But they have this weird way of taking what you have said and interpreting it in such a way where it's bad and it's negative. I've known people like this. It's very hard to relate to people like this who are always treating you in this way. You say something and they assume that it was malicious, that you meant something bad by it, even though the words themselves communicate no such thing. Uh, here Burroughs rebukes that way of living. He, he exhorts the Christian to uh, obey 1 Corinthians 13.5, which says, Love thinketh no evil. In other words, if we love others and if we have love for God, and if we are sure of His love for us, we will not live in such a way. He even says, if something is said and there are ten different ways that it can be interpreted, nine of them evil and one good, drop the nine and go with the one good. Uh, This is how we are to live in this world. We're to think what is best of others. We're to interpret their words in the best possible way uh, and to not live in this negative and, and dour way. And he is saying, do the same thing with God in terms of His ways towards you. So some affliction has come upon you. And here you are reflecting upon the affliction, going, what does it mean concerning God's relationship to me, His his thoughts towards me, His love or lack thereof? And it may be that we can interpret the affliction in ten different ways, nine of them very negative. God hates me. God has abandoned me. Uh, God's wrath remains upon me, Um, etc., etc. If you are a Christian... Um, Yes, perhaps you could interpret the affliction in that way uh, according to your reason. And and Burroughs is saying don't. Instead, interpret the the affliction in the best possible way and with faith, knowing that the Scriptures say God works all things for good. Or count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that God uses these trials to produce. You, You must be disciplined to not fall into this negative way of thinking concerning the ways of God toward you. But you must interpret His 
actions and the afflictions that have befallen you with faith and with love in your hearts for, for God. And do the same for others too. It's a wonderful observation there. Number 11, do not so much regard the fancies of other men as what indeed you feel yourselves. For the reason our discontentment many times is rather from the fancies of other men than from what we find we lack ourselves. I I did not read that very well because it's hard to read. Uh, Do not so much regard the fancies of other men, the the opinions, the tastes of other men, um, as what indeed you yourselves feel or feel yourselves. For the reason of our discontentment many times is rather from the fancies, opinions, tastes of other men than from what we find we lack ourselves. The meaning is this. The world might look in upon you and say, oh, you poor soul. Look at that little cottage you live in, you know. Look at the house I live in. Uh, Look at that junky car that you drive. Uh, Look at how meager your bank account is and the rags that you wear. And if we're not careful, if we're too impressed by others and too concerned with what they think about us, it might be that the affliction that we feel within us is much greater because we're concerned about the opinions of others. I think Burroughs is here encouraging us just to set that aside. Who cares what they think? They're worldly. They find their satisfaction in things of this world. They might be rich all the days of their life, but those things will not go with them to the grave. We must keep our own souls before God and not be so concerned with the opinions of others. Our our afflictions are often aggravated or magnified because we're too concerned with what those around us think and what their their, uh, desires are for themselves, and they impose them upon us. Number 12, be not inordinately taken up with the comforts of this world when you have them. When you have them... Do not take too much satisfaction in them. I love this. And we have talked about this before. This study has been good, I think, for those who are experiencing affliction now. Yes, amen. I I hope it has been good for those who are experiencing affliction now. They've been brought to a low estate. And so, Lord, help me in this. Those who are in a low condition now, in an afflicted condition, have been exhorted in this whole study to find their satisfaction in the Lord. Yes, but for those who are in a high condition now, who are prospering now, um, they're not to be ashamed of this. This is the Lord's will for them. But even still, the ones who are in a high position now and who are, who are flourishing must be sure to lay a hold of Christian contentment too. And how do we do that? By making sure that our love is not for the things of this world, that our peace and our contentment is not rooted in them, but in but in the Lord even still. So that if the Lord were to remove all of those worldly comforts from us, we, again I say, would not be undone. Be not inordinately taken up with the comforts of this world when you have them. Should we take pleasure in the things of this world, the comforts of this world? Should we enjoy them? Yes, yes. We're taught to pray that way in the Lord's Prayer by our catechism when we pray for our daily bread, we're to also pray for the ability to enjoy God's blessings with them. Yes, do enjoy them to the glory of God, but do not do so in an inordinate or unordinary or extreme and inappropriate way. That is what is being said here. It is a certain rule, Burroughs says, however inordinate any man or woman is in sorrow, 
when a comfort is taken from them, so were they immoderate in their rejoicing in the comfort when they had it. You could tell Burroughs is a seasoned minister because he's witnessed this in, in people. If you see someone who is inordinate in their sorrow, overcome by their grief and their mourning at some loss or at some affliction, if you see that, then it is a rule, he says. Uh, it, it is almost certain that before that affliction came upon them, they were also inordinate in their love for that thing, whatever it was. Why are they so ruined by the loss of this thing? It is because before they lost it and while they had it, they were excessive and ungodly in their love for it. So that at the loss of it, they were truly undone. I think this is a very true observation. I agree it is to be considered a rule. Here, Burroughs says, for instance, For instance, God takes away a child and you are inordinately sorrowful. By the way, is it right to be sorrowful over the loss of a child? Of course, of course. But the Scriptures have something to say about the way we are to grieve. Do not grieve, as do not mourn as those who have no hope. Do not mourn like the world mourns, but mourn as a Christian. So there's a way to mourn in Christ. When God takes away a child, you are inordinately sorrowful beyond what God allows in a natural or Christian way. Now, though I never knew before how your heart was towards the child, yet with, when, when I see this, though you are a mere stranger to me, I may without breach of charity conclude that your heart was immoderately set upon your child or husband or any other comfort that I see you grieving for when God has taken it away. If you hear ill tidings about your estates and your hearts are dejected immoderately and you are discontented in a discontented mood because of such and such a cross, certainly your hearts were immoderately set upon the world. So likewise for your reputation... If you hear others report this or that ill of you, and your hearts are dejected because you think you suffer in your name, your hearts were inordinately set upon your name and reputation. Now therefore the way for you not to be immoderate in your sorrow for afflictions is not to be immoderate in your love and delights when you have prosperity. It's just wonderful. So if the Lord is blessing you now, brothers and sisters, rejoice in that, enjoy the blessings, whatever they are, but be careful that you're not an idolater. Be careful that you are not an idolater. Conclusion, and I'm over time already. I've spent many sermons over this, last, this lesson of contentment, but I'm afraid that you will be longer in learning it than I have been preaching of it. It is a harder thing to learn than it is to preach or speak of it. So there he admits what I've tried to say over and over again. I, I don't want to be misunderstood. It's easier to talk about these things than it is to lay a hold of it. But God forbid that it should be said of any of us concerning this lesson, as the Apostle says of widows in Timothy, that they were ever learning and never came to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, let us not ever be ever learning this lesson of contentment and yet not come to have skill in it. When anything is spoken concerning the duty of a Christian, oh, that Christians could but say, I have been a Christian so long and I hope I am not wanting in a thing that is so necessary for a Christian. Here is a necessary lesson for a Christian that Paul said he had learned in all estates therewith to be content. Oh, do not be contented with yourselves till you have learned this lesson of Christian contentment and have obtained some better skill in it than before. Uh, and I think this is just about the conclusion of his book. He has a little bit more to say. Uh, but do not be content, do not be satisfied as a Christian until you lay a hold of contentment. I, I think that is a very uh, wonderful way to conclude this study. As I said, I'm over time. Uh, we could talk later about this if you want to um, 
uh, pull me aside. Uh, a very rich study, a very challenging study. May the Lord help us in laying a hold of contentment. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, this world is filled with many blessings, many good things uh, that you have given. Help us to enjoy them properly, O Lord, to the glory of your name. And Father, I pray that above all else we would have our satisfaction rooted in you. May we learn, O God, to not only know about you, but to know you and to savor you and to find our satisfaction in you. We trust that if we do this, you will be most glorified, we will be most blessed. So do help us, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.